Thank you, Frank and Gerald. Um, I surrender all. Amen. And, uh, you know, that, that's a good intro there to the message today on Christian conduct. Are we to surrender anything? You know, today there seems to be all kinds of Christianity out there that, that just allows you to uh, be a quote-unquote Christian without really giving up anything. And, and that's re- reflected today in the message. I'd like to begin by reading our primary text, 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. Picking up where we left off last week. It says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, today we encounter now uh, this passage we've been talking about for some time. It's what most theologians deem just the summary statement of this letter. Uh, The writer is the Apostle Paul. The recipient is a young man named Timothy, who is now currently the overseer and pastor of a church that's located in Ephesus. And and Paul writes these things, verse 15 says, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Church, again, not being a building here in what we're discussing today. The church is the body of Christ. It is God's people who have come together, those He has redeemed, those who have repented of their sins. We have the household of God. And I pondered really for quite some time on this passage. And in fact, I essentially rewrote it this morning. And it's not that I had to write it from scratch again. I had done the research. I had a written manuscript. It probably would have been fine. I even titled it a week ago, Christian Conduct 101, so that the bulletin could be printed. But though I had completed a script... That probably would have worked fine. I felt it just didn't hit the bullseye. And, and if anyone here has ever worked in, like in a demolition of any kind, uh, you realize that you can swing that hammer or that ball again and again to knock down a wall if you aren't hitting the right location. And you might eventually get that wall to crumble but after a lot of work and after a long period of time. But when you've got a, create, uh, a crane operator that's, that's experienced, he knows where to swing that exactly to, to make the wall fall into place and, 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 and to do that demolition. So as I was laying in bed, I, I pondered whether or not I had hit that mark, or if I was just going to come in and hit you with some demolition ball. And uh, uh, I have a genuine concern for this particular passage. It, it's so immensely important It's so eternally significant, not not just for us, but for those that we know, those outside the church. And uh, that can't be missed here. And if I were to name this sermon again, I might title it something like, What's the Big Deal? People are always asking, What's the Big Deal? Bible preachers, teachers are always getting that question asked, You know, why can't you just get over it? Why can't you leave us alone? Why can't you just reassure me Jesus died for my sins, I'm saved, and then just let me live my life the way I want to? 
It's, 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 it's poised all the time, that question. And in the Old Testament, you know, the people wouldn't, uh, the people wouldn't be left alone by the prophets. They didn't like it very much. Uh, the prophets, most of them were killed in one form or another. Because they wouldn't leave the people alone. Noah, he wouldn't leave the people alone. And uh, uh, you don't want, want to know why I think most people didn't get on that ark with Noah? I think it's because of what the Apostle Peter said about Noah. Apostle Peter said, he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. And Noah lived in a day that we learn from Genesis 6 verse 5, a day that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was continually evil all the time. Folks, we live in that day. And since Noah preached righteousness, you know, why would anybody from that culture want to get on the ark with him? The reason they'd want to is because that boat, that ark, is about how they are going to be saved from judgment. They needed to be spared. But who'd want to share that household with Noah, with his preaching, a bunch of stinking animals? They could have, they could have argued with themselves. What stinks more, Noah's preaching or the animals? Who'd want to be around that? And, and out of all those people that were alive in Noah's day, only seven. Seven others. Eight in total were saved through the ark. And if you remember, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, that which corresponds to this salvation provided through the ark is the church. The church is the ark of salvation. Being placed into the ark, we're placed into Christ's church, into his body, deposited into it by the Holy Spirit. And people are saved by coming into the church. Coming into Christ's body. So it'd be logical then to say that we need, what we need to do is to make coming into the church as easy as possible. Easy as possible. Enjoyable. As polite. As wonderful as possible. Right? And if we, and if we just be quiet about what the Bible says about righteousness or, or make the getting on board really easy, possibly like on those cruises that you go to, you know, and they're waving you on, wanting to take your photo and everything and have a good time and, and walk you right on board. If we can make it very alluring, perhaps more people would get in the boat. That's a very alluring proposition for the preacher. Just leave the people alone. Live and let live. Wave as many people onto the boat as possible. Come into the church. Don't bother them so much with conduct. Kind of leave that alone. Because people don't want to deal with that too much. Uh, because really, if, if we really loved them and wanted them to be saved, we'd want them in the church, right? That's true. Christian conduct, uh, we, we might say, doesn't really matter in the end as long as you're in the church. Sound ridiculous? Who would ever try that? I'm going to offer three examples of who would try that. The church I was raised in, it is uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. That's what I was raised in. It was what I went to confirmation in. It's the largest Lutheran denomination in the country. It represents millions of card-toting members. Millions of them. And in becoming, really, they're, they're not ashamed of it, the liberal left wing of the Lutheran denomination the Lutheran tradition, they essentially stopped preaching conduct years ago, long time ago. 
And uh, they, they do have multiple scriptural, scripture readings every week. I got to read some of those as I was a child, usually three per week. Two from epistles and, and one from a gospel. And uh, they do read that, but every local congregation gets their scripture reading from national headquarters. You are told what you read from the pulpit every week for the scripture reading. So to make it short, their Bible had more holes in it than the Jefferson Bible. Are you all familiar with the Jefferson Bible? President Jefferson, he went through it and he cut out everything that he didn't like. Anything he thought wasn't reasonable, anything that he thought was too miraculous, he just cut it out because he didn't like it. The Bible got pretty thin in the end. That was the Jefferson Bible. And that's what this model of church is doing uh, today. The result is now that they just happily ordain people from all kinds of different ideas about sexuality and, and partners and gay marriage. They just let anyone in. Just ordain them. And uh, they, they're trying to get people on the boat. And they've got a whole lot of tolerant people on the boat. What's the evidence in that denomination they're safely on the boat? When I was growing up, the evidence was that you were sprinkled as a little child. That's how you know you're in the church. It's confirmed when you're 14. You're in the church. They take it really literal from Peter... Uh, 1 Peter 3.21, that baptism now saves you. You take that way out of context. Just sprinkling someone when they're an infant doesn't save them. We're saved through faith. A second illustration is the Catholic Church. It isn't particularly concerned about personal conduct either. Uh, as long as you get sprinkled, make it to Mass every Sunday, pray the right prayers, confess now and then to a priest, and receive your last rites, you can pretty much go on Monday through Saturday, how you want. They really don't bother you a whole lot on conduct. They don't really outwardly condone it much, but they don't talk a lot about conduct as long as you are faithful in keeping the sacraments. That's what they want you to do. And they have grand cathedrals all over Europe, large ones that are empty. They're empty. People may be coming up and taking a wafer now and then, but really the churches are empty in Europe. Third example is one we're very familiar with here. It's a movement that we call charismaticism. And, and the charismatics, they're not all so concerned about preaching righteousness either. They're more concerned about experience. Conduct really isn't that important. They don't preach a lot of doctrine. Um, as long as you can display some kind of wonder... They, they want to see either some kind of tongue or some kind of miracle, perhaps give a prophecy, have your own prayer language, a healing of some kind. And, and they church, teach very little about doctrine, most of them, or preaching against sin. What you find is people giving a lot of displays of emotion, a, lot, a diversity of displays of, of emotion. And uh, you can really do whatever you want. You, you, can, you can do whatever makes you feel good. In fact, the, the, the more different you are, the more spiritual you're considered. You just act and behave however you want. And um, you put yourself on spiritual display. By that, by knowing that you have that, you are a part of the church. That's how you come into the church there. And, and you can go home and behave during the week pretty much however you want. They never really challenge that in any of these three. And what we often see uh, with pastors in charismatic circles is, um, and, and 
pastors fail in every circle. But in the charismatic circle, they'll fail. They, they may have an, a, an affair with a secretary or a divorce, but they'll remain in the pastorate. Because they say it really doesn't matter. He's got the gift. On Sunday, he's putting on the display. God hasn't removed a spirit from him, so he's got the gift. So we've got all these kinds of, of, uh, of expressions of what it means to be in the church. And, and these three have a couple things in common. First, they make a, a very small issue of godliness. And second, they insert something in its place. They put something in its place. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Then Paul gives a long list, a laundry list of ungodly behaviors I don't want, just don't want to go into right now. But he says, Difficult days will come. Men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. A form of godliness. Although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, Paul says. Notice they hold to a form of godliness. They look godly. But they've denied the power of godliness. So what is that power of godliness? Why is practicing righteousness so essential for the Christian? Why don't pastors just look the other way? Why don't we just avoid the passages that are hard? that challenge us. That's part of the reason we go verse by verse through books, by the way. That's the reason I like to do it most of the time. You can't skip it. When you come to a passage, you're there because that's where you arrive. You don't hop around. And um, why is our conduct in the household of God, the church of the living God, so incredibly important today? I pray that this passage will, will convict you of why. Why it's so important. And great is this mystery of godliness that Paul speaks about. The church of Ephesus had broadly turned away from godliness. If you remember from a couple months back, we we discussed a prophecy Paul gave to those elders that were out of Ephesus. It's in Acts chapter 20. And this was earlier on, years earlier. And, and, And this prophecy Paul gave had come home to roost. Ephesus was a really hard church. And Paul said to those elders, he warned them then, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink to you, shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole thing. Not just parts. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And after Paul said this farewell, we we read in Acts there were tears. All of this happened. The wolves arose just as Jesus said that they often do in sheep's clothing. And by the time that Paul was able to return to Ephesus years later, after his first imprisonment, and then bringing along Timothy, a whole lot of damage was done. And in fact, all the elders who Paul had left there previously, those shepherds um, had either left or given up. They're off the scene. They, They just vacated the place. And Ephesus essentially had to restart what they were doing. They had to start over again with Timothy now in charge. A young man, probably late 30s, no older than 40. 
And uh, for a reason we're not told, Paul travels on to Macedonia. He tells us in, in chapter 1. But he sends this letter back now that we're reading to Timothy, who is attempting to reestablish the church with elders, with deacons, with leadership, with an understanding of righteousness. And, and they're trying to, to, to put a foundation under it again because it had come apart at the seams. And the ministry conditions in Ephesus remained very challenging. Paul says in verse 14, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come before long. Paul realized Timothy was going to be under immense pressure to cavitate to the culture. The Ephesians, what they wanted to do, they were, they were lingering. And it's why Paul closes this letter with these words to Timothy. He said, Oh, Timothy, guard what you have been entrusted with. Guard it. And he continues in verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. From, from what we know historically, Paul probably never made it back to Ephesus. It appears from the records we can bring up He was put in prison and martyred. But what's more important is that this letter did make it back to Ephesus. And and Paul says he writes so that these recipients, these saints, these people who love Christ in that city will know how to conduct themselves in the household of the living God. And and if you didn't catch that, Paul is saying that he's writing as an apostle and he said this is authoritative for the church. I am writing to you so that. Paul's saying this is authoritative. The writings of the apostles are what we live by. We'll speak more to authority and inerrancy of the Bible in the next three weeks as Paul talks about it further. But for today we need to accept that this letter of Paul is fully authoritative. Fully authoritative for the church, as are all the letters that we have. And the Apostle Peter affirms this. After defense of his own writings, Peter even had to defend himself. In chapter 1 of his second letter, he defends himself. Peter closes that second letter in chapter 3 by defending Paul. Peter had to step up for Paul, saying, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. According to the wisdom given to him, he wrote to you, as in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some are difficult to understand, which also the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Peter is calling Paul's epistles, his letters, Scriptures. They're fully authoritative. And and the reason that Paul writes to Timothy is, is to provide that source of authority from an apostle. Timothy had previously traveled and ministered right alongside Paul for years. Timothy knew the proper conduct in a church. He knew that. This was nothing new to him. The reason this letter is sent to Timothy is so that he could hold it up in front of people. I've got an authoritative letter from the apostles of the scriptures. It's authoritative. And he was able to read that to them and to say, hey, this is from the apostle Paul. 
God's Word. It's how we conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. It's how we structure our church. It's how we conduct ourselves in the church. And it's one of many letters that have been passed down now over 20 centuries. Over 20 centuries. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The words you've heard from me. That's pretty bold if you're not an apostle. And he rep- represents himself as a source of authority. In Philippians 4.9, Paul tells that church in Philippi, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The apostolic letters are authoritative. If you recall from the study of 1 John that we went through last year, the the reason the church is always functioning according to the writings of the apostles is because they were the eyewitnesses of Christ. They're the ones who saw Him resurrected from the dead. And John writes in that apostle, the apostle John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus there. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you, the church, the eternal life, which was the Father, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The whole reason the apostles wrote is so that everyone else could come into fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the apostles. And he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Adhering to the biblical writings is how we know our relationship with God is genuine. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The entire problem with the church today, the models that I gave earlier, they don't want to conduct themselves in accordance with the Scriptures. They don't want to behave. They don't want to live. They don't want to uh, do according to what the apostles have written in the Scriptures. What, what professing, professing Christians do want to do is to be saved and then go back to living the way they were. That's what professing Christians want to do today. After that long intro, folks, this is not possible. This is not possible. Paul says in verse 15, We are the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We live out the truth. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We are the pillar that upholds the truth in our society. We're supporting of it. And Paul writes this to Ephesus, and they would have immediately recognized what he was talking about with pillars. The the great temple of Artemis, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that great temple was held up with 127 pillars that soared 60 feet in the air. And they supported a roof to that, which was one and a half football fields. Yet Paul says, you're the pillar of the truth, church. You're the pillar. Don't worry about what's around you, what they're doing in Ephesus. 
We are the pillar. And those pillars might hold up that amazing structure. We, the church, the household of God, we uphold the truth. We love the truth. We defend the truth. We live by the truth. How is it then that we uphold the truth? We do that by reinforcing the legitimacy of the truth through our conduct. Through our conduct. When our conduct does not reflect the truth as it is written in the Scriptures, the world says, we don't believe you. You're not conducting yourself in the household of God the way that you say it's supposed to be done. We don't believe you. And, and when we tell people that Jesus' name is holy and, and we use it to curse, we're not a pillar of the truth. And, and, and when you say to your friends that, that God created sex to be uh, an intimate display only between a husband and a wife in marriage and, and they find something, pornography in your toolbox at work, folks, we're not supporting the truth. When you say you're pro-life, you're worried about children and the elderly who are who are dying and protecting their life, yet we murder people with our tongue, we're not a support of the truth. It's not consistent with the truth. Paul is very concerned with our conduct. And when our conduct isn't lived consistent with the Scriptures, it pulls all those truth pillars right out from underneath the Scriptures. They pull it out actually underneath of our our confession of the Gospel. It doesn't support what we profess. And we convey to people when we do that that our gospel has no power. It has no power to change. But there is power in the gospel. And in verse 16, we find the truth. Paul says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery. Great here. It's a Greek word, megas. It's where we get the word mega. This is mega, or it's great. It simply indicates the influence and the reach of this mystery of godliness. It's huge. And the mystery is no more. Whenever you see that word mystery in the New Testament, uh, all that word mystery indicates is that it's a fact that wasn't known in the Old Testament. It's a fact that wasn't fully disclosed to the Old Testament. To them, it was simply a mystery. But it's revealed in the New Testament. Paul said in Ephesians 3.3 that that we find that that he discusses this mystery of how the Gentiles were included into the church as as co-heirs with the Messiah. And and now we have this inclusion of of the Gentiles, fellow heirs with the Jews. To them in the Old Testament, they didn't get that. It was a mystery. Paul says the mystery now has been revealed. So whenever there's a mystery... It's something in the Old Testament they just didn't quite get, but now we see it in the New Testament. And, and Paul says, that which used to be a mystery in the Old Testament, in fact, a great mystery in the Old Testament, one that would have had mega or profound impact on eternity, is the gospel. The gospel. It was going to have a mega impact, the mystery of godliness. And the impact was going to be demonstrated through changed lives. That's how the impact happens. Second Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
newness, regeneration. The gospel makes people new. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It saves people. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel is powerful. It is the power of God to save people and to change people. And yet we teach our children that Conduct, probably not that important. Jesus loves you as you are. Conduct, change doesn't matter. You know, we might teach them that, you know, little Johnny, um, you should behave because you wouldn't want to disappoint Jesus, right? We do that, we say that type of thing. We tell people that biblical conduct is because it will help you avoid pain in your life. You won't get diseases transmitted, you won't end up with, a, with an unplanned pregnancy, you won't uh, have situations that arise in your life that are troublesome to you, so uh, if you practice some righteousness, you might avoid some sin and avoid some trouble from it. That's what we make it. That's minimizing the power of the gospel. And, and, and though those are true, I don't want to undermine those. It isn't what Paul's concerned about in this passage. He's concerned about power. And where that power comes from. And and please don't miss this, folks. The reason our conduct is so important, the, the reason it's such a big deal, is because if we don't change, and if we remain in our sins, we are thus proclaiming to the world around us that the gospel has no power. We're saying the gospel can't change anybody. If we don't change if we don't conduct ourselves in an increasing uh, manner of righteousness, we're saying the gospel has no power to fix anything. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it that through the gospel and through the faithful teaching of the Word of God, we're changed. We are changed. And that power is demonstrated not through the sprinkling of a child. It's not through a routine eating of a wafer. That that change is not displayed through an emotional uh, display, but the power of the gospel is demonstrated through a life that increasingly looks more like Jesus Christ every day. That is the power of the gospel, to change people into Christ-likeness. And when people ask me how I know I'm a Christian, how do I know that? I don't point to a sprinkling with water or an immersion, either one. I've had both. I don't point to the fact that I partake in communion every so often, though I do. I I don't point to the fact that I can mumble out some kind of unintelligible prayer language as evidence that I'm a Christian. I know that I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ changed my life. That is the power of God unto salvation. He's changed me. And I'm made new. I am in Christ. I'm now in His body, deposited by the Holy Spirit. And though I may, like everyone else, fail from time to time, or I will fail from time to time, I I live my life to glorify Jesus Christ. That's a change. And I know God has worked in my life. I'm sure you can tell the same. And folks, if you haven't seen that change in your life, if you haven't 
had that yearning for righteousness and purity and conduct, if, if that doesn't interest you at all, if you can't identify a point in your life where there's been no change in your conduct, folks, you have no assurance that you're a Christian. Your assurance comes from a changed life. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and we study and we devote ourselves to Scriptures, to learning the Scriptures, to teaching the Scriptures in ver- a variety of ways through videos, through Bible Life Group, through studies. We do this not to feel good about ourselves, though sometimes it makes us feel good. Not so we can memorize a bunch of platitudes out of Scripture so that we can sound spiritual when we're around other people. We don't do it so we can recite facts of knowledge from the Old Testament and memorize the kings and tell others and look impressive. We devote ourselves to the study of the Word so that we can increasingly facilitate that change into Christ-likeness. That's the whole reason we do it. We want to be more like Jesus, and we want other people around us to see that change by the Holy Spirit. That's what we want people to see in us, that there's been a change and, and when, P, when Christians profess to a world that, that a faith leads to regular old selfishness and greed and gossip and cheating and adultery, when, when that's how we behave, the world replies, why would I want to be like you? Don't they? There's no change. Why would I want that? So we increasingly leave our sinful conduct in the rearview mirror for the sake of the gospel. For the testimony of the gospel in Jesus Christ. As it's found in 1 Corinthians 6-9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals, or thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We were changed. We've been changed. We're in the process of change. That's how you know you're a Christian, is you're in this process of conforming into the image of Christ. Praise Jesus! We're not what we used to be. And if you say to yourself, you know, I, I know I'm in that group of sins you just listed. I haven't experienced any change. I, I don't have the power to change. I don't know how to change. You're right. You don't have the power to change. But God has the power to change. That is the power of the gospel. That is the change that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is that you will have the power. God's Spirit has the power to change you. If you're struggling with all of these, and you're like, I, I don't have any victory in anything, God's gospel has the power to change. The good news is that Jesus came so you and I can change. Not say the same or regress. And what we find in verse 16 is that the Paul records, uh, records six lines that contain the power of the gospel. Right after asking for conduct, that we conduct ourselves appropriately, he gives the gospel essentially in what Greek, Greek scholars say is in a rhythm. These stanzas are in a rhythm 
uh, a Greek rhythm that un- unmistakably identify this as an early church hymn. It's a portion of an early church hymn. And, and Paul begins by saying, by common confession, great is this mystery of godliness. He's talking about the gospel there. And the first stanza says, and he was revealed in the flesh. He's God. The Hebrews didn't fully understand the incarnation. This was a mystery. They didn't fully understand how God would become flesh and dwell among them. But God did it, and God sent His Son to be born to a virgin, come in the form of a man. It makes sense to us looking back now. It didn't make sense to the Hebrews looking forward. It was a mystery. But Jesus Christ is both fully God and He was made fully man. And next, Christ's three-year ministry, it was said, vindicated or justified in the Spirit. It was vindicated in the Spirit. This word vindicated, it's a unique word. It means to, to be shown as righteous, to be demonstrated as righteous. And Christ was, in His life, He was shown to be righteous, and that was testified to by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testified at Christ's baptism. That he is righteous. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit testified to Jesus Christ through the miracles that were displayed. Through Christ's ministry. The Spirit testified to his sinless perfection in his teaching. The Spirit testified at his crucifixion. So Christ was vindicated through, the, through his life, through the Spirit. And how did the unrighteous religious leaders, the Pharisees, respond? They didn't believe the Spirit's testimony, did they? They said, we, we believe that's from the devil. <laughs> no wonder that's the only sin that can't be forgiven. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So they didn't believe he was vindicated in the Spirit at all. And, and then next we see that he was seen by angels. What's that allude to? Sometimes people ask us like, well, did the women see Christ first after the resurrection or did the men? Neither. The angels saw Jesus first. They were there at the tomb. They rolled back the stone. They were there when the women came. And they asked him, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's risen. So the angels saw him. That's the resurrection. The women and the men saw him. 1 Corinthians 15, yes, 15 or 16 says, Over 500 people saw him. So he was seen by angels. And the next stanza says, Christ is proclaimed among the nations. So here we see this mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles all coming in. Christ is proclaimed broadly throughout the nations. And and next, it says that he was believed on in the world. So we see the establishment now of Christ's church coming together. Then finally, the last line of this hymn, it says, taken up in glory. Taken up in glory almost certainly refers to Christ being taken up in glory. His ascension where He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Stick with that exclamation. That's a good one. It's a safe one. It's what all the commentaries say. But consider this. If these stanzas are each written chronologically, a lot of times in a hymn they are, it might read this way. God was first revealed in the flesh. We've got the Incarnation. Christ was vindicated in the Spirit. That's His three-year ministry. He was seen by angels. 
refers to his resurrection. Proclaimed among the nations, there's the gospel going forward. Believed on in the world, the establishment of his church. Taken up in glory. Folks, we are going to be taken up in glory. Christ's church is going to be taken up in glory. We are going to be drawn to Him. He is going to establish His righteous perfection in us finally once and for all. He's attributed His righteousness to us. We are going to be righteous before Him. And we are going to be taken up in glory. And that might happen this next week in a car accident. It might happen 20 years from now from a heart attack. God willing, the rapture might happen today. But the Christians are going to be taken up in glory. If you're like, you know what, I I don't know. I don't know if I believe any of this. I don't know about Christ. You don't know if you're going to be left behind when it all happens. And we know with the ark that uh, everyone who was left behind faced judgment. You don't want to be left behind, folks. You've got, you've got to understand and contemplate and, and process that Christ came and lived that perfect sinless life that we haven't. That He died for sin debt that He didn't owe, that we owed. He paid our debt. He was murdered. He was killed. He was sacrificed on a cross and died. Then after being in the ground for three days, He arose from the dead. and was seen by hundreds of people, including angels. Folks, that is the power. That has the power to change you and me and everyone who believes. And, and it ought to drive us to that godliness Christ didn't come in, come to call us to faith so we might just continue to be like we are. Live our lives like the world. There's no power in that. God has called people to come into Christ's church. The call has gone out. You need to trust in Jesus Christ and believe on Him. I don't know what else to say except pray. Folks, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you do not know Uh, what will happen when you face Jesus in that judgment day, which could be any day. Folks, you need to trust that Christ did it for you. And I want to pray. If you want to pray along with this, if you want to utter your own words to God, don't go home without settling this today. And I'll remain up here afterwards if you want to talk about it. But please join me as we close in prayer. Dear Lord, great are You, holy are You, Lord, loving are You. Lord, You are precious, You are holy, You are righteous. Lord, and You have called out to us to repent, to know You, Lord, to trust in the Gospel, to realize that we are sinners in need of change. And Lord, this world is hard. Lord, we struggle. We need your power to come in and change our hearts, Lord. To live a life that honors you. To glorify you, Lord, in everything that, you do, that we do. 
In Christ, we pray for anyone here who hasn't quite gotten it, Lord, that your spirit would move, that it move mightily, Lord, that you would call people to repentance, that you would change hearts, that you would regenerate, Lord, that you would build your church, Lord, for your glory, for your glory alone. Lord, we love you. We look forward to your return. Lord, until then, help us to serve well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.